the most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Pushkin. I'm Maeve Higgins, and this is Solvable, interviews with the world's most innovative thinkers working to solve the world's biggest problems. My name is Victor Chin. I am the executive director for African Youth Initiative Network. I am from Uganda, and my solvable is to work hard and end civil wars in Africa, hopefully in my lifetime. So our guest this week is quite a remarkable person. Victor was the first Ugandan and the youngest ever African to be nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. That was for his human rights work. He's basically a peace builder, working in parts of the world where peace is most needed. There are 54 countries in Africa, and despite a long history of colonialism and the newer and potentially even more deadly reality of climate chaos, many African nations are managing to flourish. Today, though, our solvable is the 15 African countries that are currently involved in wars. Victor knows firsthand what it's like to come up in a war zone, having spent the first 21 years of his life as a refugee. He was one of the three million people displaced by the civil war that has raged through Uganda since the 1980s. That conflict has now spread to the neighbouring countries of South Sudan, the Central African Republic and Congo. Victor was born in 1981, during the Ugandan Civil War, a period when many different rebel groups were fighting. And then, in 1987, he was only six years old, and a particular rebel group sprang up in northern Uganda, where he lived with his family, a group that became notorious worldwide. They called themselves the Lord's Resistance Army, the LRA, and the LRA grew increasingly violent against civilians, abducting and killing tens of thousands of innocent people in northern Uganda and mutilating many others. Their brutality against children was particularly severe. 
They would abduct children and force them to kill, making them into child soldiers. That was one of their hallmarks. In 2003, Victor's own brother, Omara, was abducted by rebels. The family suspect Omara was forced to become a soldier, and sadly, they never saw him again. Victor's life has been dedicated to his community and other victims of terror and conflict, namely by founding the African Youth Initiative Network. Even as a 13-year-old, he instinctively chose to fight for peace when many around him despaired and took up weapons. Today, his organization works to treat both physical and emotional wounds and advocates a leadership that always chooses peace. You'll hear how in this conversation with Jacob Weisberg. It's a little longer than usual episode of Solvable because Victor's story is one that we just don't get to hear a lot, if at all, especially told firsthand and with such grace. Victor, what is the problem of civil war and violent conflict in Africa right now? The problem of civil war and violence in Africa right now is manifested in mass movement, the refugee crisis all over the continent. Uh, we have seen in the international media the young people dying trying to escape from Africa to Europe in the Mediterranean Sea. We have seen uh, outbreak of preventable diseases which escalate and becomes more disastrous because Humanity is caught up in the struggle for survival. They can't afford to care for their own. And we have seen increased death, you know, due to civil war. We have also seen a lot of xenophobic attack in South Africa. You know, this, the continent is so challenged with so much in terms of conflict-related movement that results into more tension, tribal differences, ethnic conflict, and so much wrangles over properties and in so many ways. Natural disasters continues to be difficult to manage because humanity are caught up fighting. What are the major wars in Africa right now and how many people are affected? How many people die in those wars and how many people die and are made refugees as a result of those wars? To even look a little bit uh, back in the history, uh, study has always shown that after every 20 years, mass atrocities happen in Africa, especially in the Great Lakes uh, we've seen the windows of 1960s, 1970s, 1980s, and 1990s, early 90s, when we had the Rwandan uh, genocide, uh, the atrocities in Darfur, in, uh, in Congo, in northern Uganda. The population went through civil war for over 20 years. And Central Africa, we have Mali, we have Somalia falling apart. So if you look more, especially in the Great Lakes region, we are in that window right now window of possible mass atrocities. So we uh, continue to see the instability in Somalia, the Al-Shabaab conflict. Of course, it's uh, the international community, the African Union working towards trying to pacify Somalia by supporting the government. But still, it's a big and challenging civil war that continues to, to, to evoke not only Somalia, but also the entire region. And... What we're seeing right now is a continued conflict in DRC. Unfortunately, the Congolese people have been through the worst of the worst in life. A rich nation with such vast potential. The Congolese people have never seen a moment of peace at all. And you wonder how long can this go? 
But also we're seeing you know, different countries in the region. You have Ugandan rebel groups in Congo, the ADF doing mass recruitment and is linked now to ISIS. And they are doing recruitment within East Africa and even the Southern African countries. And this is growing up to be a very potential disastrous conflict. But of course, you're also aware of what's going on in South Sudan. The last five years has been so vicious that hundreds of thousands have died, millions are displaced. I'm from northern Uganda, where we are doing our work uh, to support post-conflict recovery. But also this is the region that currently hosts over 1.2 million refugees from South Sudan, from Congo, from Central African Republic. You can imagine the pressure. A community that has been through war for over 20 years without so much, now its condition is forced to host another million refugees. So the pressure never stops. So the conflict in South Sudan, in, you know, in DRC, in Central African Republic, and Mali is, is, is horrible. The situation in Mali is not even getting better anymore. And of course, leave alone Libya and you know, the potential Egypt is just struggling to stabilize. And in West Africa, of course, there's so much to do in terms of historical injustice, historical conflict that has not been addressed. And this has got the potential. So the number of people dying, I can't tell exactly. But so many people are dying every day due to war-related crises, either being killed in battlefields or as a result of war, poverty, disease. I want to hear about your story. I know you grew up and spent most of the years of your life in a refugee camp. How did you end up there? I was born in northern Uganda in the district called Lira. And I was born in 1981, just immediately after dictator Idi Amin was deposed of power. And in that community, there were more than 10 rebel groups operating, including the current government was in the bush fighting. And where I grew up, I could see the only vehicle I saw as a child was a military truck. There was no other vehicle. The only flying object, the plane I saw was the helicopter, the military helicopter and jet fighters and bombing us. And... We wondered, say, what is going on and how long can this go? So I was born in conflict. I grew up in conflict. And then it went on to, to, to the community went on to experience continued cattle rustling by neighboring cultural, you know, tribal groups. Then the Lord Resistance Army emerged, and that became the worst of the worst in Uganda's history of conflict. It started close to our home. And I, we were the immediate target by the LRA, but also we were the immediate, our community was the immediate target by the government battlefield. So we became the center of battle for both government and the Lord Resistance Army. And this went on. As a child, I could see, I was wondering how long was it going to end. It took us 20 years to get out of that. So my growth, I grew up in war. I, I grew up in the camp. Spent my childhood as a, you know, in the camp growing up. I studied in the camp. I survived all the war-related you know, challenges, including health, education, uh, feeding, shelter. I'm one of the people who spent over seven years eating one meal a day. We didn't have food. My parents were too poor. In terms of education, you know, it was even more challenging. Of course, in conflict, education is not a priority. The biggest worry is for every child is if I'll get the next meal. That was the most worrying experience as a child because it was always the tough way that 
You wake up in the morning until 4 p.m. You've got nothing to eat. And then you eat until the next day, 4 p.m. That is the life I grew up in. That's the life I survived. And I started to struggle with my education, with my health. I survived. There was twice Ebola outbreak in my community. And live alone, meningitis, malaria. I, I went through many things that work and cause. And you, you've talked about the cycle of violence and revenge that people who are victims of war become warriors and want, want justice, but it perpetuates the cycle of violence. How do you break that cycle? To break the cycle of war and violence, it's easier said than easier done. First of all, war creates so much amount of trauma. And the trauma needs to be healed. If not healed, trauma creates another war. Then becomes war, trauma, trauma, war, cycle. You need to get to a point of breaking that. And it also becomes generational. When children are born in conflict, their parents will always be asked, why are we being killed? Why are we being targeted? And these are the questions that most parents doesn't have an answer to. But then the question comes in, the parents reach a point of saying, we are suffering because of that tribe. We are suffering because of them. That's already telling the child who their enemies are. So that transgenerational, cross-generational transfer of trauma, of, of pain, is like planting in the new seeds of violence in that child who is being told who your enemies are. So you have somebody to hate as soon as you can understand the world. You're growing up with who your enemies are with what you want to do next time you have opportunity to revenge, to strike back, to let them feel the pain. Everybody as a child, I wanted to study to become a doctor, to become a journalist, to become a, you know, a pilot like any other person. But when war came, everything turned around. All became about survival. You're walking now, and all of a sudden, two people get blown by landmines right in front of you. You're playing with your friends, and within a few minutes, you separate them apart, they are taken, and they have never been seen again. You're just playing football. There was a moment when we were playing football. We made our own ball. Because there was no football, we were in the camp. About 100 of us, we made our own ball. And we were kicking, kicking. And one of the elders came and saw our ball made out of rugs. You know, we were playing, kicking around, hand-folding. And he came and picked it and said, kids, what are you kicking? He said, made our own ball. We were very excited. And then when he unveiled it, he found something wrong. It was a bomb. It was an unexploded bomb. Mm-hmm. And then we were told that this is a bomb. Run. We took off in many directions, crying and shouting. And we were afraid if, if this bomb blew up, over 100 of us were going to be dead. The question is, who is next? then becomes you. You are the next in line. You can be blown off. You can be walking alone. You can be abducted. Every painful moment was to see your mom leaving home to fetch water. The big fear was, will she come back home alive? Will she not be blown by landmines? Will she not be raped by the men in uniform? So this was every child's biggest fear. You know, the, the feeling of loneliness, powerlessness, and you feel unwanted. You feel you don't belong. So this is the kind of spirit, the kind of feeling that renews and continues to perpetuate and, you know, the trend of violence because a child will grow up knowing that I have to do something to prove to my parents that I love them for what they did to me by retaliating. One of the cruelest aspects of this is, is children who are 
kidnapped and turned into soldiers. They're victims, but they become perpetrators as well. It is very clear, almost obvious that a child victim, if not properly rehabilitated, becomes an adult perpetrator. They're so indoctrinated, they're told who to kill, how to kill, where to kill, when to kill, and this is all they learned. And once a child is misinformed and made to go through experience which is so painful, like in northern Uganda, what I saw, kids as young as 10 years and below were abducted and they are forced to kill their own parents before they are taken. You don't want to come back home. What are you going to do back home? Because you killed your own father in front of your other sisters. They saw that you you were the one hitting, you were the one beating until they died and then they took you away. So that kid, when he's in captivity, will never want to come back home. That is vicious. That is a very challenging part. But now it also comes into the issues of the role parents play. Parents go through too much during war, especially women. I know in Africa there's that sense of feeling that a man, you must be strong to provide for your family, to protect your family. But when you are so powerless, there's that moment in war that you are too powerless to protect your own. And that moment of vulnerability is when a lot of men gave up. Either they picked up the gun to go and fight in, in being powerlessness, you know, powerless and hopelessness, or they committed suicide. A lot of men died during conflict. A lot of women demonstrated much more strength during conflict than men. Because a woman would say, okay, we know we are not supposed to be so powerful. We're supposed to be able to facilitate and they will do every risk to protect their family. But now in the post-conflict reality, war is manifesting more in women than men. Because throughout all this time for women going through this process, they took too much. They showed a lot of strength and demonstrated, you know, power in the face of adversity. But now, a lot of men in the post-conflict are not as affected as women. You know, you can see it's manifesting so heavily in women. And the trauma, the pain, and this is when a child say, this is the reason... War is the reason why my mother is going through this kind of pain. I have to do something. Now that's when they become adult perpetrators. They are looking forward to retaliate, to revenge, to strike back. And that's why I think parents or families play a big role because war destroys the most important institution. If families turn apart, society turn apart. I want to know what made you, growing up in a refugee camp as a young man, choose the path you did and think about breaking this cycle instead of, as you said, the path of despair or continuing the cycle of violence and seeking revenge yourself? I've seen the best humanity can do and the worst humanity can do. I reached a point where I was exhausted. I was tired. I was tired of my own insecurity, my fear. I, was, I wasn't sure if I was the one who was wrong. As a child, I kept on asking myself, what did we do to deserve all this kind of... It would be raining heavier than this, but you have to run and sleep in the rain without tent, without cover, without shelter. And this was not for a year. We waited for war to end. Took years, took 10 years over. Became 20 years. War was still continuing stronger and stronger. But then as a child, it reached a particular moment when... I think I was on the brink of giving up. Like any other kids, I saw my friends who were running in and out from Monday to Monday, 
we, every next two hours you're on run, you're being chased, you're surviving attacked, you're surviving landmines. And life became so complicated. And I, I saw my friends volunteered. Some of them volunteered to be abducted, said, even if I stay, I'm not being protected. I have no choice, but let me just go. If I go, I'll probably have a gun. I'll be in charge of my own security. I'll kill somebody or somebody might kill me. This was a despair. We went to fetch water in the morning in a group of about eight to ten of us. On our way to fetch water, two people in front got blown by landmines. Boom. We took off, running back with our small container jerrican for water. We were crying, running towards home. When we got home, and my mom told me to go and pick up some goats. Because he said, now that the landmine is there, that means the rebels are around. So take go and get the goats and bring them. And then when I, I left my friend at home, I went like for a distance. From, all in all, the process took less than five minutes. When I was picking the goat, pulling it home, I came and asked my mom, where did my friends go? They said, they have all been taken away. I said, by who? I said, the rebels just took them right now. And that's how... I survived that man, one particular moment. And uh, I, I was just lost. I said, no. In the morning, some were blown by landmine. Just now, some are taken already. And the question is, who next? It became me. I was next. And that's when I realized that it was no longer far. And it was just a matter of time before I'm taken. And we, mom said, no, don't mind. It will be fine. Let us keep on trying as much as we can. Then there was all of a sudden gunshot. We ran and came back. When we came back home after a few hours, we found like so many dead bodies at home. And I remember my mom shouting and crying loud, who made the gun? That was her statement. Who made the gun? Who manufactured the gun? Shouting at us, looking at every one of us. We don't have the question. We don't have the answer to the question who made the gun. But the captain said, who made the gun? Why a gun coming to kill children, women? What did they do? Who made the gun? That was like, she was crying and you could tell she was powerless. We didn't have answer to her question, but that was a repeated question. Who made the gun? The next day I saw the government military truck came. And everybody was running towards the camp center. And I asked mom, said, what is that? They said that the government has brought a lot of weapons and they're saying anybody who can shoot a gun must learn how to shoot a gun. So they even brought the child-friendly uniform, military uniform. So it meant that women, men, children, everybody who can fire the gun should go and pick up the uniform. I saw people running and I told mom, I'm not going. So yes, don't go. So my remaining friends, out of despair, picked up the uniform, picked up the weapons. They were trained for a few hours. They were deployed to fight the rebels. You were how old? I think I was 13. Some were younger than me, actually. Went and picked up the uniform. We didn't have clothing. Some went because they wanted something to wear. Myself, I had only one pair of shorts. There was nothing else. So when I told mama, I said, I'm not going. And then said, perfect, don't go. When they went, kids as young and women with children in their back picking up the guns, they were trained and all that. 
The, the rebel waited for them, waylaid them, ambushed them, disarmed them. Some would try to resist, were killed. Some were at their hands, nose, ears, lips cut off. And some were taken. Those who were, you know, disfigured, those who were mutilated, were sent back home with their body parts. Take this to the government. Take it to Museveni. This was a message from LRA. In the evening, there was cry all over the camp. And I said, this is it. How long can this go? The next day, I said, I'm not going to sit and watch. What I did, I went and I sat 300 meters away from the child soldiers recruitment center. And I started pushing my friends who were coming to join. Because they said, you come, come. Everybody was out of frustration were coming. I would stand there. I would stop them. Talk, don't go, you'll be killed. People thought I was joking. I became hated by some of them. My name also featured to the rebel camp that I was the one discouraging young people from joining them. My name was also with the government troops that I was the campaigning, discouraging patriotic young people who want to protect their community. And for the first time, both rebels and the government troops found their common enemy. That was me. It went on to become so difficult and so complicated. We were struggling in all ways with education, my parents couldn't even afford to buy a pencil. They were that poor. And the worst of the worst came, I lost my mom when she was stuck by malaria. There was no medicine. And the road to town, which is about 25 kilometers, was blocked by several camps of the rebel, rebel camps. We tried as much as we could to get medicine for our mom, but there was no single government health centers working. No private health center. We didn't even have money. There's nothing. Then my brother, whom we followed, was two years older than me. We sent him to town that, can you go and pick up medicine from the government hospital in town? He had to walk through the bush. Took him almost 12 hours to go through the bush from early morning when it's still dark to late night when it's still dark, when he got to town. And he went to the government hospital and said, our mom is very sick. And we don't have we don't we don't have any means to bring her. We don't have a bicycle either. So we are, I've come to get medicine, and then the government also told him that no, you have to pay an equivalent of half a dollar to get medicine. He didn't have the money. He went back home without. So when my brother went back and said we did not manage, so maybe we should take our mom, get the way of taking her to the hospital. The road was blocked. No vehicle. No bicycle. No nothing. We had to make some reeds to carry her through the bush to take her to the hospital. But we tried our best as our children, taking her through distance a little bit. But when we went through, there were moments when we almost stepped on landmines. Went through our bushes, we, could, we survived. And our mom saw that our health was deteriorating. It's not easy anymore. And then she said, I know you're trying your best to take care of my health, but don't mind about my health, mind about your security. I don't think I'll make it. Take me back home. We took her back and she went on. So that was difficult, very, very difficult. Of course, as a family, we remained so solid. The children were much stronger. We, the children, were stronger than our own. Our father was so depressed and was on suicide watch because he didn't have anything to do. He was lost. He was powerless. He was, he was unable to do anything. In 2003, after struggling so hard to survive, to live, 
my brother whom we sent to pick our mother the medicine him and i went actually to the village so we had some uh, two cows and we wanted to pick it up and it, we rode on the same bicycle with him for the first time at work so i had bought a bicycle and uh, that was the first bicycle in our family i bought for him and he was a very happy man that day he was because he was also a, a, a priest praying always for the people in the camp we went, went together with him at home. We spent a night in the same house, the same building. And in the morning, said, now the road is not very safe. Let me walk ahead of you with the cow and another young man. Then you follow us with a bicycle. Because from the same family, it would be very risky for us to walk together. Two kilometers away from home, we entered the ambush. So the rebel started chasing us. But as we were walking, there was another woman walking behind us, like 500 meters in the road. And she saw us being chased by the rebel, me and my friend and the two cows. And she ran back home and said, those kids are already taken. I saw them being chased. And there were so many rebels with a gun chasing us. And I said, no, we are not going to stop until they shoot us. And we kept on running. We ran across the valley and then the rebels stopped. So we were not taken, luckily. My brother, upon hearing that we were taken, he was panicking and freaking, wanted to come, and the soldier stopped him. He said, no, don't go. If they are taken, we shall get away of recovering them. If not, let them go, but you remain. For me, I was also on the other side of the bridge, afraid that my brother was going to come and enter the ambush. There was no phone, no road. The only road we had was blocked. At night, when the soldiers told him, nobody is going to go to town, we are blocking the road, the rebel came and took him on the 10th of December, 2003. Unfortunately, up to now, he has not come back. He was abducted together with my two cousins and other closer family members. They all never came back. And that was the moment I, I, I was just lost. I had all the wishes in mind. If I had a gun, I would have probably attack the rebel myself. I was going to have a one-man army. I had other wishes that if I, maybe I made a mistake by not picking up the gun, by not becoming a soldier, but something in me kept on telling me that, no, 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 carry on, and your choice to be peaceful was right. So I started walking to the camp. I would just walk like I was lost. I was mentally unwell, I think. I was also angry and still wondering what to do. Walking through the camp, I would see people, children who lost both parents were in the queue for food aid. They would be kicked out. The sick people would be kicked out of the line. I was angry at people who were kicking them out. I feel like I wanted to like fight them physically. Why are you kicking the most vulnerable people out of line? Because the only people who are strong enough could get food. It was always a scuffle. And I started somehow, from nowhere, I started acting like a weird person. I would go and pick these people who were weak and sick, put them in line, and I said, no, you touch them, I'll deal with you. Until they get food, I'll not, I'll not leave. People saw me and say, what is this guy doing? Who is he anyway? He's coming from a different camp. What is he doing? But I left it the next day. But at least something was burning in me. That's why I went on to form this organization called African Youth Initiative Network. Because I was lost. I wanted to talk about peace. People didn't understand. When I started the work uh, with the organization, there was no money. For two years, I was struggling to look for asking people, can you give us $200, $500 funding? 
They said, no, we are not here to give you money. But you started it in one camp. Yeah. And did people join you and work with you? Yeah, I started in one camp. I went on to another camp doing helping these people. And then said, okay, maybe what I'm doing is right. So what I need to do is to now have a formal institutional backing. People become so suspicious if you have good intention. In a community where violence is the order of the day, that was so strange that there was somebody who was so kind that all the international NGOs who had all the money, all the big money, they never gave us anything. They all said, no, we are not here to support you. We are here to help other people. After we started working, talking about peace, meeting formerly abducted, meeting former child soldiers and families, people told us, why are you talking about peace that you have never seen? We cannot talk about peace with all these war wounds on our body. I could understand their pain. I could understand their fear. In one of the incidents, I was talking to the young people. I was counseling. I met this young man who told me his story, how he was abducted and what he was told to do, how he killed other people, how he abducted other people. And there was one particular story that he told. He was actually talking about how he operated in my home area. And he went on to talk about the church because we had built a church at home. Then he said, yeah, in that camp, actually, we used to hang around the church. And that church was exactly in our home we built it then I went on to probe him more and he explained one particular situation how he abducted what they did how they came and made sure that the soldiers who were sleeping in the church which was 40 meters away from the house where people were sleeping would be guarded would not be allowed to know what was going on he explained how he abducted my own brother so he explained how he took my brother it was a very difficult encounter how they tied him, how they made him carry loads, and how they tried to cross the water, and majority of them didn't know how to swim. And I knew my brother didn't know how to swim. So I, when he talked about that moment of forcing them to swim, yet they didn't know how to swim, with loads of luggage on their head, I just said, no, I don't want to know what exactly happened to my brother. I did not tell him. You didn't tell him? That, I did not that, tell you him. You realized it with your brother? Yeah, I did not realize and I told him, can we stop the discussion? I have some emergency. Can I come back tomorrow? Then he continued. Then he said, yeah, of course, you can go and come back. I, I was freaking out. I was, I was ducking. I, was, I didn't know what to do. I wanted to cry. I couldn't cry. I was choking in pain, in shock, in disbelief, what I learned about my, my, my family fate. In the morning, I went back to the kid again. I said, can we continue talking? Because I also wanted to know what happened my brother. When we started talking about how they managed to cross this, the, the river, and they went to the field, they went to the primary school where they had so many other rebel groups assembling and with comparing the abducted numbers of people. So then how they tried, they, there were people who tried to escape. They were killing them in the, in, the, in the playground. And I just, again, I couldn't handle that story anymore. And I said, okay. This is it. Let's, let's stop now. I'll come back after a week. Then we can continue discussing something else because the story would always be heavy. He's innocent. He's a child. He was never a commander because as a commander, you have command responsibility. But as the commander, you have no choice but to do what you're told to do. Something, Captain Ted, go back to him. Go back to him. It could, could be a good opportunity for you to work with somebody who probably would be a good tool for you to mobilize other people like him. I went back after a few days. I met with him and I said, I want to work with you. I said, I don't care about your level of education, but all I care about is your heart. You have such a good heart. You've been through too much, but you are, you are so strong. 
I think you can talk to and work a lot to other people who have been through terrible life like you. That moment of giving a handwritten appointment letter to this young man, promising to pay him an equivalent of $80 a month, I've never felt anything like that. The process of picking the paper, handing it over to him and saying that, I want to work with you, I'm going to give you an appointment to become one of our counselors. We'll train you even to become better and better. I felt the heaviest load of pain, of fear, of the torment felt of me. You know, for the first time, I, I became myself by, by, by handing over that trust, that love, that care, that kindness towards my brother's abductor. I felt at peace with myself and I felt at peace with him. I started feeling at peace with the world. To me, that was the most powerful moment of my life. And I, today he works with us. He still works with you? Yeah, he doesn't know. Yeah. That. He doesn't know that he, that he was the abductor of your brother? Yeah, I've not told him. Yeah. And you, did you ever find out what became of your brother? No. I tried a lot. I was once working on the radio. And one of the formerly abducted came and said, Are you Victor? I said, Yes. I will used to listen to your program on radio because I was doing adolescent sexual reproductive health. And then we used to listen to your program on radio in the bush. And then he asked, did you have a brother who was abducted? I said, yes. I said, one day he was listening to you and he was crying as I was listening to your voice. And I said, okay, what happened? Then said, I don't know what happened because as we listened to the radio, all of a sudden there was a government helicopter came and started randomly bombing us. There were a lot of children who were abducted. A lot of people got killed. I don't know what happened to him. I never saw him again. We all ran in different direction. So that was the last day I saw him. And that was the last information I had about my brother. Victor, tell me about your work today, how the organization has grown and what what you're doing and where you're doing it. We, we said, can we use our pain, transform it into something good to help us build ourselves? And then we use that story to help us build the African Youth Initiative Network. And since then, we've been working to support medical rehabilitation of victims of mutilations, of gunshots, trauma healing, victims of sexual violence. It's ongoing actually up to now. We still have ongoing medical or surgical camps we conduct, is now about 22,000 people that we have supported. Those whose lips, nose, ears were cut off, amputated, sexual abuse, and all that. We have uh, a group of 42 young people I'm working with, permanently employed with us. Half of them are educated, they are degree holders, others got even masters. But half of them are not educated. They are people, when you go to my office, you'll find... They have no lips, they have no ears, they have no hands, but they're doing terrific work. Their experience compares to no degrees in the world. They are wonderful people whose stories <clears throat> empowers themselves, empowers others. Not until people heal physically and emotionally, it will always be difficult to talk about peace and justice and forgiveness. Because we have healed people, it has opened for us the doors now to to work with young people, mobilize and train them as leaders in, you know, in, lead, in peace, 
you know, in reconciliation, in mediation, and conflict prevention. This is what we are doing with the young people right now. In other parts of the continent, we do a lot of continent-wide exchange programs, working with the young people. It's more about the, f- the focus on how can we plant in the spirit, the seeds, and the culture of peace among the young generation. How can we support re- healing, reintegration, but also support community you know, efforts towards reconciliation? In addition to that, we also work to promote the international criminal justice. We've been promoting a lot of the, the ICC, the International Criminal Court, to prosecute, to mobilize victims as witnesses before the court. We are happy and frustrated at the same time because the whole thing we agreed up front was any move to ensure victims get justice would support it. We supported ICC so much. I still, I now reach a point of saying that for the sake of justice, trial must be made at home. And when you talk about the vision of ending violent conflict in all of Africa, is it really about this movement spreading? We are talking about bringing the international system, the international framework, normative frameworks, and UN and all those players on board, and bring on the same table the traditional African approaches, the, the Ubuntu, you know, things that have held the continent together. If we bring them together and integrate them, then we can say, who are the players in peace building? It's not only religious leaders, it's not only elders, it's not politicians, but it's politicians, youth leaders, women's leaders. Peace at home defines peace in the community, defines peace at, uh, at the nation. So we're, we're saying if we can help bring people together through the Peace Academy, then we can create a platform where we can train youth as peace builders, launch a peace movement, a continent-wide peace movement, because we have an African outlook, we want to build a peace academy in Uganda, but then start conducting a training opportunity to support the youth leaders from different parts of the continent. And after forming the web network of peace builders, we launch a peace movement. It is our hope that through the Peace Academy, in two, three years' time, we can have an African-led model peace-building operation, not peacekeeping operation. Mm. We want a model peace-building operation, something that we know where the next war is going to happen. Even right now, the world knows where, which country is going to go through the next war, but nobody's doing anything to prevent it. We want to be able to be preventing conflict up front, but only it is possible when we have the local homegrown peace builders, homegrown conflict mediators, not waiting for outside world to come. But if we can empower ourselves and create a platform, we can also strengthen our humanitarian response capacity locally. There's so much we can respond to protect and support one another. But because we are not mobilized, we're not connected, it's so difficult to do it. So, Victor, I know a lot of people listening to this are as moved and inspired by your story as I am hearing it. What are some things that people can do to support your peace initiative, but also more generally to promote prevention and end to violent conflict in Africa? I know the world is full of problems, and sometimes people find that the suffering or the war or pain is too far away from me. Just because it is in Africa doesn't affect my business in Europe, in America. It's okay. To some people, that is how it feels. I've always wanted to reach out to people who genuinely want to help Africa. 
and allow African people to live life of peace and the continent is safe. There's so many ways. One, let us support, join hand and support the local actors, local peace builders, local young people. It hurts me to see they're dying every day trying to escape the continent. They're diving into the unknown in the water. Africa has given to so much wealth on this planet. But I think the time has come also for the world to get Africa out of poverty. We would be willing, we would be happy to be supported to help us build a peace academy. Support our work in training the peace activists across the continent. We need change right now in Africa. But we cannot pursue change by planting seeds of destruction. We need to pursue change by planting seeds, love and care for fellow humanity. And that's what I think you can do as a listener Don't think it's too far away. If you love me, if you love our people, if you love the continent, you could help us work towards planting the right seeds in the right generation at the right age. Let us have a platform where we can promote the culture. Maybe we're going to, in our lifetime, raise a new Mandela, raise a new Desmond Tutu, leaders who have shown so much care and treasure for humanity, and they are the people who give us so much hope. And I do, I do believe so many Africans really are hoping that one day they will be in peace and they will live better, happy life. Victor, I feel like I've just been talking to someone like the people you mentioned. And I want to thank you for, for who you are and what you're doing and for sharing your story with us. Some incredible personal testimony there about life in a war zone in northern Uganda from Victor Ochen and his journey through it and out of it. Archbishop Desmond Tutu said, My heart swells with joy to see Oten as one of the new hope for Africa. And it's a rare and beautiful thing to know that much of Victor's work with the Peace Academy and his work with survivors of conflict is coming down the line. You can find him at AfricanYouthInitiative.org. Solvable is a collaboration between Pushkin Industries and the Rockefeller Foundation with production by Chalk and Blade. Pushkin's executive producer is Mia LaBelle, engineering by Jason Gambrell and the fine folks at GSI Studios. Original music composed by Pascal Wise. Special thanks to Maggie Taylor, Heather Fain, Julia Barton, Carly Migliori, Cher Vincent, Jacob Weisberg and Malcolm Gladwell. You can learn more about solving today's biggest problems at rockefellerfoundation.org solvable. I'm Maeve Higgins. Now go solve it. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, 
Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.